You're listening to episode 235 of the Mad Chatters podcast, December 18th, 2019. Most everyone's mad here. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Mad Chatters Podcast, your very important date with the happenings at Walt Disney World and around the Disney universe. My name is Derek, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Jeremy. The merriest. And joining us this week is friend of the show and host of her own podcast, Book of the Mouse Club. It's Courtney Guth. Hey, Courtney. Hey, how are you? We're great. We're so excited to have you here on this very special, long, in-depth episode. Uh, But we're going to get to that a little bit later. To kick off the show, we're going to do a round of The Disney Fix. The Disney Fix. Now, this is just a segment where we, you know, if there's anything Disney-related we want to bring to the table and discuss with our fellow hosts, this is the time to do it. Uh, So I'll throw it over to you first, Jeremy. What have you got? Yeah, I wanted to bring up um, something that's been out for, I guess, about a month, month and a half now, but I have just gotten around to it. Uh, And that is Bob Iger, who is the CEO and chairman of the Walt Disney Company. Uh, He wrote a book. And it's called The Ride of a Lifetime. So I had to look at the title. Lessons Learned from <laughs> 15 Years as CEO of the Walt Disney Company. And uh, so I got around finally to reading it. I think Courtney has read it. Yes. And Derek has not because he <laughs> is still learning to read. And uh, <laughs> But as we know, reading is fundamental. So I wanted to read this and... Um, just get some thoughts on it. So I guess I'll say I enjoyed the book. Um, it was not as much of a corporate shill as I expected it to be. I feel mm-hmm. like he did get a little candid at times, um, which I didn't expect. He doesn't like name drop or like call people out or anything like that. But I mean, obviously, he's still being respectable. I also thought it was interesting that he said that it wasn't a memoir. So he didn't really go too deep into like his personal life in some areas, at least not as deep as I I would think because anytime I read somebody's like biography or memoirs, <laughs> I feel like the first three chapters are dedicated to their grandparents, you know, and their long journey to the United States. <laughs> and it's like, all right, you know, I just want to know about your career. I don't really want to know about, you know, Grandpa, Grandpa Iger and, you know, the, the struggle in Germany <laughs> kind of a thing. <laughs> uh, but so he doesn't really go into that um, as much. Your thoughts on the book, at least the initial thoughts? I guess I can call this a Mad Chatters exclusive because we haven't covered this on Book of the Mouse Club. Um, I enjoyed it and found it to be a very easy read. I wouldn't say I necessarily learned a lot. I know that's part of the the subtitle, Lessons in Leadership. There wasn't any like mic drop takeaways there um, for my own career, but I, I did enjoy hearing about the different acquisitions. I think we can agree that that's Bob Iger's legacy with the Walt Disney Company. Um, So he goes in depth into Pixar, George Lucas with Star Wars and Marvel and kind of dealing with the individual executives and being kind of sensitive to making that acquisition. Like he doesn't rush it and talks 
more about the interpersonal side of that, which I appreciated. Yeah, I also thought it was interesting in that where he talked about how Michael Eisner was very against the Pixar acquisition. You know, kind of his take on that, which obviously didn't make Eisner look good in light of that. Um, so, yeah, the, the acquisition stuff is very interesting, and I 100% agree. I wish there was more on the parks, but mm-hmm. Bob Iger has never been a parks guy, so I guess that shouldn't surprise me too much. One thing that surprised me that he didn't go too in-depth on, but um, I always find interesting, is he did talk a little bit about his dad and how his dad seemed to struggle his whole life with um, manic depression and also mm-hmm. just with a sense of failure in his own career. And I think that's so interesting because I think not to sound too Freudian or anything, but I think a lot of us are really uh, motivated by a lot of stuff in our childhood that we don't realize, or at least we are set on courses from our childhood that we don't realize. And uh, I'm always fascinated to see really successful people who find that they're driven based on, you know, family uh, history and I and I thought that was that was an interesting look because you know how do you go from my dad thought he was a failure his whole life to I'm the most successful media mogul in the world and I could see that paralleling Walt Disney's own story you know you mm. often hear about Walt's father and the hardships that his family went through as a child yeah one thing that he mentioned too he he's mentioned this in interviews and then in the book he talks about it which I think is a, a nice little in-depth into him and Steve Jobs relationship Mm -hmm. Uh, because Steve Jobs really had a reputation for being, you know, very cold, um, not the most personal or friendly person. Um, and a lot of people contribute that to his success. So the fact that, that Iger was close with Jobs, I think was a little jarring to me. Um, although it makes perfect sense. And then he talks about how right before the Pixar acquisition that Steve Jobs, um, disclosed to him his cancer diagnosis. Yeah. And how he said it was, you know, the acquisition was an exciting time, but rather than being celebratory, they ended up crying together, which I thought was kind of a beautiful little picture. I never realized just how close they were because that Pixar story comes first in terms of the acquisitions. And I found that to be his relationship with Steve was a common thread throughout. So he references Steve when he's talking about Marvel. He's like, oh, like, you know, Steve didn't really like those movies, but I think if he was still around, he would have loved what we did because Steve ultimately did become the largest shareholder in Disney prior to his death. So those decisions, you know, would have been paramount to him as well. How fascinating. Did you, so, so he is still the head of the Disney company as this book is being rolled out. And so I'm curious, did you notice any moments where it felt like he probably had more to say, but he was sort of censoring himself a little bit? Um, from a publishing standpoint, I found it interesting that I believe it's Random House. I know it's it's not the Disney publishing um, Hyperion Press. Um, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we got something, you know, maybe 10 years down the road again, kind of post-Disney career. But he was pretty candid about the situation with George Lucas and kind of straight up says like maybe i could have handled that better Hmm. okay there were little nuggets in there that were i guess you know more transparent than one would expect okay that seems to be the gist i've gotten from other people i've heard who've read the book uh which is surprising and you know not what i would have expected when i first heard bob Iger was publishing a book yeah he even talks about um 
a little sexual misconduct thing that happened to him early in, in his career yeah yeah which i thought again part of me was like this sounds terrible please don't send me emails or judge me because i think everybody should tell their stories but it also kind of felt to me like had he shared that story if we weren't in the climate that we're in currently as far as like the the, the harvey weinstein sort of sort of area so you know because it I don't know. So part of me felt like the book was very honest and open, but then the other part, I kind of felt like sometimes he was pandering to the current climate. On that note, though, I will say, in terms of Derek's question, I am thinking he did kind of breeze over the John Lasseter thing within that same climate. Mm, Um, Like, he he briefly mentions it, but I think he, he swept it a bit under the rug. Got it. Like, let's move on. Yeah. Okay. So he is definitely the man that Oprah wants to run for president. I don't know if you saw her interview with him, but she is all in on Iger 2020 or 2024 or whenever he wants to run. Um, There was always rumblings that he wanted to run for political office. I think that he's a little too too old for that now because I think, what is he, 69, 70 years old? Close to that, yeah. Yeah, so by the time, you know, the next election cycle runs around, he'll be in his mid-70s and I don't know, after running a company like Disney for 15 years and being involved in the industry for 40 years, um, I think I would just want to go home and enjoy my money. <laughs> but who knows? Rich people do crazy things. So you're not looking for a Iger Winfrey ticket in 2024? Oh my gosh, <laughs> I am, I'm printing the shirts now. <laughs> Get your bumper stickers ready. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good to know. Uh, so I guess you can pick up the book at stores. I, it's also an audiobook, And I heard he actually reads the the prologue or whatever he titles that introductory introductory section. So Yeah. And, and even if nothing else, I think the, the prologue is kind of interesting in and of itself because it the prologue really is dealing with the moment in the summer of 2016 where they're opening Shanghai Disneyland, which was his what he considered the highlight of his career and took 20 years to to put together. But at the same time as they are about to open the park is when the Pulse nightclub shooting happened in Orlando. And then if you remember a couple days after that was when the alligator incident happened at the Grand Floridian. So it kind of gives a little insight to what was going on in his mind and trying to juggle a lot of uh, different things at one time. That was definitely a very transparent section as well. Yeah, yeah. I was actually talking with some friends um, a couple of days ago about this, and and they had a different perspective on it. That they thought it was kind of an odd way to start the book, and really um, felt cold. And as far as you know, they didn't see the connection between he was struggling with opening the park and struggling with the death of this child. They thought that one would, did not really equate with the other. But I was like, well, I get that. But also, you have to understand, this is 20 years in the making of this park. So, yes, it was a tragedy and a terrible thing. And they don't equate. But you still had a lot of people riding on a project that had been going for a while. So, yeah. And I saw it more as it's about what he was personally going through and relating it to the lessons that carry throughout the book. Like, that was a culmination in a lot of those in that moment in the quick executive decisions that he had to make. For sure. For sure. Well, there you go. Bob Iger's book. Okay, cool. Um, I want to talk about something on a much smaller scale, literally. Uh, so I, I mentioned both. I mentioned this to both of you already, but I want to talk a little bit about Star Wars. 
And yes, I did ride Rise of the Resistance, but that's actually not one I want to talk about. And we can if you guys want, but... That's my Disney fix. So okay, we'll good, good, good. Save it for that. Good. Well, I didn't want to give away too many spoilers just because having ridden it, I decided that like, I enjoyed the experience having not watched any videos or anything, and I felt like I, it would be hypocritical for me to come on here and tell every detail of the ride. Right. But I do want to talk about a piece of merchandise that may be one of the best pieces of merchandise I've ever gotten at Walt Disney World, and partly because, in a way, it's technically free. And I show this to both of you, and it's been part of Galaxy's Edge since that land opened, but it's called the Batuan Spira. I'm going to say it's Spira and not Spira because, like, Black Spire, but it's S-P-I-R-A. And these are little gold coins... And, I mean, this is very hefty, like heftier than you would expect. It is solid metal, and it's sort of like an elongated hexagon with some with some Star Wars symbols on it, and then like a little outline of what looks like probably the Black Spire outpost. And these are behind the counter at the merchandise store that's connected to where you make the droids. Like, there's the one room with the droids, and then the room adjacent that just has some pieces of merchandise and behind the counter they have these coins and on the back it says disney gift card and there's a barcode that you can scan and these work as disney gift cards anywhere disney gift cards are accepted and all you you do have to add a minimum of a hundred dollars to it but the coin itself costs nothing. So if you say, I want to add $100 to this gift card, it costs you a flat $100. And in my mind, my nephew was with me, and I'm like, we're definitely going to spend $100 in the parks between today and tomorrow. I mean, his blue milk alone costs like $13.99. <laughs> so that was no problem Wait, at all. Wait, did you give him the alcoholic one? <laughs> no, no, no. But we went... <laughs> no, no. But when you go to the um, cantina... Oh. It the cookie. Yeah, it comes with the cookie. I was like, blue milk, $7. That's <laughs> how Derek got him to sleep at night. <laughs> That's right. Here, buddy, please drink all of this as soon as you can. No, no, no. In the, in the cantina, it's $13.99 because it comes with a cookie that he did not eat, but that's okay. That's okay. Anyway, so I loaded this thing with $100, and now I have this gift card. I used it everywhere on property. Like, okay, actually, here's what's kind of funny. The one place that did not accept it for some reason was Big Top Souvenirs at Magic Kingdom. And yet, like, the, board, the Boardwalk Pizza window accepted it. <laughs> so, like, I don't know what's going on at Storybook Circus. But, yeah, I what used... What did they say? She said something like, this is a, uh, a scan card and we are not able to scan or something like that maybe they're only able to swipe cards Derek was so upset he burned the place down <laughs> I, heard, I heard that there was a fire <laughs> no 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 um not me but yeah so it's really cool and it was kind of exciting because every time I whip this thing out to pay with the person at the state the person at the um register was like very intrigued by it and almost seemed like they also wanted one. Um, it, in every single case, they were like, oh, oh, what's this? And then they would scan it and then be very surprised when it worked. Like, oh, yeah, no, that's a Disney gift card. That's cool. Um, but it's technically free because you just load money onto it and that's your money to use. Anyway, I just thought it was the coolest thing. And I'm probably really late to the game on this. But if you're looking for a Star Wars souvenir that is very good quality 
and that you can use over and over again because you can reload it. Um, I highly recommend this uh, little Spira coin. And that's that's my Disney fix. So. Very fun. Well, even as an Orlando local, I have to get my Disney fix as well. Um, if you have not heard me guest on this show before, it has come up. I am a Disney cast member. So this is the part where I explain that all views and opinions are my own and do not represent the Walt Disney Company. Uh, but as cast members... We're currently, understandably, it's busy, blocked out of Hollywood Studios, but I remembered that I had these comp tickets, which were gifted twice a year, that kind of override those blockout dates, and I had a pair that were expiring on Friday, December 13th, so opening weekend of Rise of the Resistance, I was like, we're going, and I want to do it, and I'm going to get my Disney fix. Um, so we can talk more. I think it'd be fun to talk about like the process, since you also got there very early. I certainly agree. I went in with as little information as I could, so I don't want to spoil that for anyone else, other than I will say that it was absolutely amazing, and like I kind of cried. Uh, and I'm not even a super big Star Wars fan. Just the level of immersion is that great. Uh, but the boarding process, I think, has worked really well um, in terms of the virtual queue. Um, it's still continuing today and really, you know, no idea how long that will be in place. But if you're going within, I'd say the next few weeks or so, it's likely to still be there. Um, so when you tap in at the front gate, you have availability to go right into the My Disney Experience app and get in the queue, so to speak. So you don't physically have to line up for a long time. You get a boarding group and you're called back. And I really enjoyed that. Um, we got there probably at 5.45 a.m. The park opened at 6.30. We were through the gate because there were plenty of people in front of us filling in all available space. Um, we were through the gate by 6.45, had our boarding group. And the ride, um, you know, as things happen, as they come up, it did go down for a little bit. So it was about a, quote, six-hour wait for us. But we spent that at Uga's Cantina. We enjoyed a Ronto wrap, walked around studios. You can hop on the other attractions. We even at one point got on the Skyliner and just rode over to Epcot and walked back when it was time for our boarding group. So I found the process very smooth. I totally agree. It, it is deceiving because the day we went, the app said the park opens at 8. So I could definitely see guests showing up at 7.38 thinking we're good to go. But we showed up at 6. Like you said, the gates were technically open by 6.30, which means as soon as we got in, we could join one of the boarding groups on the app. And then, even though it was only 6.30, most of the rides were already open. You know, the app says the park opens at 8, but between 6.30 and 8, we rode Toy Story Mania, Slinky Dog Dash, and Smuggler's Run. And all that while, technically, we were in line for Rides of the Resistance, but you're able to enjoy other things. And it is convenient, because I'm thinking of the people who, like, what time was your group called back? Um, honestly, I think if it hadn't gone down when it went down they were on group 26 and that was about 9 30 a.m um it did get back up and running and we were called probably around 11 45 or noon okay because there are some groups who after they enter the park and they join the group their group isn't called back till 6 or 7 p.m yeah and we were lucky <laughs> yeah definitely think of the equivalent of getting in line at 6 30 a.m 
and then actually getting on the ride at 6 p.m. Like, no one wants to do that, you know? But the nice thing is you can leave the park, which I found very flexible, and you have a two-hour window to return. I'm sure most people, like, as soon as we got the notification, I'm like, it's time to go back. Um, Definitely. But there is that flexibility. Like, if you're like, well, let's go back to our resort, enjoy the pool, because we're probably not going to get on it till this evening. Like, you're still in the queue, but plenty of time to enjoy other things yeah exactly and and i'm thinking the alternative to that is actually being in the physical queue from 7 a.m to 6 p.m and that's just not ideal at all especially every time it goes down and the line stops for a while and you're thinking is it ever going to get back up again you don't have to worry about that when you're doing other things it's it's a cool system now now my question is you know we sort of uh, among ourselves talked about how this is sort of an unfortunate system for people who are not in the know, you know, for people who do think, okay, the app says it opens at eight, let's go at 7.30, we'll be fine. And you show up and all the boarding groups are already gone and you just had no idea that that was gonna happen. Do you think, cause my first thought was that's unfair, but the more I think about it, do you think if they had, made this into a normal queue like any other ride where you go stand in a line that if you showed up at that time and got behind all the other people who had joined a boarding group that the park would have closed before you got on anyway i mean that's kind of didn't we see that with hagrid's at universal they're like the line is is closed for the day so it could be a possibility um i will say it has improved in that regard um this week the app has been updated along with the official parking or sorry excuse me the park hours um it is 7 a.m um i believe through the end of this month or this year this decade (laughs) crazy to think about (laughs) okay well that's good to know yeah um anyway so the more i thought about i'm like maybe it isn't as unfair as i thought because maybe those people would be at the back of a 13 hour line anyway and at that point it's like we just we just can't put every single person on the ride until 5 a.m. You know, like at some point we have to close this down. So it's it's so far, it's a pretty ideal system. And I do wonder when they're finally going to A, quit doing that and B, start offering fast passes for at least one of the two rides. Yeah, no idea. I don't know. I don't know. You know, they ran the Matterhorn for what, 60 straight hours they kept <laughs> Disneyland open. Wow. Also, Matterhorn didn't have fast pass for like That's 55 true. years. Yeah, I very recently got it. No virtual queue for the Matterhorn, I can tell you that. <laughs> all right, well, there you go, uh, listeners. You know, if you are going to Walt Disney World anytime soon, look at all the blogs, be very aware of how the system works, and then decide, you know, what time you want to get there. Hey, it's time for another hashtag. So get out your tweeter, get ready to to get those thumbs a-traveling, because today we are doing hashtag Disney Christmas mashups. So this is like, is that what it is, or what was it? It could be whatever you want. I thought (laughs) I had written down Disney Christmas carols, but you do you. Oh, Disney Christmas carols hyphen mashups. This is important, uh, because we're going to have millions of people tweeting the hashtag, and we want to get it right. That's true. We want to go viral. Um, So we wanted to take two songs, a Christmas song and a Disney song, and if you could mash them up. Now, this doesn't have to be necessarily funny. It could be a legit, like, thing. Think of, like, um, Voctive a couple years ago put out an album, and they mashed up Carol of the Bells with the Bells of Notre Dame. 
which I love. If it's it's on the iTunes, you should find it and listen to it. Spotify as well. Spotify. There we go. Um, so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do some Disney Christmas songs mashup. So my first one is um, "I'll Be Home for Christmas," matched mashed up with "A Dream Is a Wish a Heart Makes," because I'm thinking like. I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams a dream is a wish your heart makes. Isn't that nice? It is. I didn't know we had to sing, so you won't be getting (laughs) that. No, you don't. I mean, for me, it's a sin not to sing, so, um, you know, don't feel pressured. For your listeners. All right, well, I went with the title concept, and I did Rockin' Around the Riverbend. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Yes, I also went with the title mashups, and I said "Joy to Part of Your World." Oh, <laughs> the other part, no joy to. That's but, right. Uh, <laughs> I like that. Um, I did Frosty the Snowman is going to be mashed up with In Summer. It's a little low hanging fruit there, but of course, I think those could fit together nicely. I said, do you want to build Frosty the Snowman? I had that on my list. And I also had Melakaliki Hakuna Matata. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Those are two entirely separate languages. I had Melakamiki with Hawaiian roller coaster. Okay. Mm. You know, they're both Polynesian themed. Oh my gosh, I would jam out to that, definitely. <laughs> okay, what about what's this? What's this? What child is this? <laughs> It's Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda, yes. (laughs) I like that. Did Santa Baby Mine? That would I just kind of want to hear where that goes because those are two very different. Oh, that's good. I had a Baby Mine. It's cold outside. Okay. I had Baby. It's cold out there, like Hunchback. Ah, yes. (laughs) Not outside. It's out there. (laughs) Wow. You guys, this is good. I think we're going to have an album here by the end of it. Um, I'm going to mash up the 12 Days of Christmas with Be Our Guest. Because I can see, like, we've got a lot to do. Is it 12 dancers or two to be our guest? I don't know. You know, something like that. Okay, you write that out. I need to visualize it. Get back to me. How about there's no place like home on the range for the holidays? Oh, there is no place I come on the range. <laughs> That's for sure. I had Jingle Bella Note. <laughs> oh, that's so good. I'm wishing you a Merry Christmas. Hmm. Yep. Uh, yep. No way. Angels we have heard on High School Musical. <laughs> <laughs> Hark the Herald Angels in the Outfield sing. <laughs> that that's actually the song. There's a song Angels in the Outfield? No, no, like but the movie. I was inserting Disney. Oh, okay, I got you, got you. Into got you, got you. a Christmas okay. song. The rules with- were not clearly defined. <laughs> <laughs> no. This is very much open for interpretation and and it's fine. That's great. Um I have We Three Kings of New York. Ooh. Little newsies deep cut there. Yeah, they bring gold, frankincense, and a sour pickle. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, I got a couple more. Oh, holy Arabian night. 
Also, Merry Christmas, darling, and Jim, dear. And Holly Jolly Holiday Christmas. Oh, very nice. Oh, okay. Took me a it minute. Took, it took me a minute. <laughs> Holly Jolly Christmas. Jolly <laughs> Holiday. Jolly Holiday. Yeah. I'm with you. Well, we want to know what you have to say with your Disney Christmas Carol mashups. So get on to Twitter. Hashtag, that's the thing that looks like the tic-tac-toe sign for you you boomers out there. And uh, join us. I don't think the symbol is the thing they're going to be confused about. I think it's the actual, actual hashtag. Disney Christmas Carol mashup. Isn't that what we said? Sure. It's official now. <laughs> Just tag us, at Mad Chatters. We'll find it. Okay. <laughs> In just a few short weeks, we will be ringing in the new year. But this time, we're not just closing out another year, we are closing out another decade. So, on this week's episode, we are going to look back at the 2010s as a whole and talk about the moments, the overarching themes, and the biggest shifts and changes that really defined the past decade in terms of the Walt Disney Company. To do that, we've broken down the items into a handy A to Z catalog so, without further ado, let's begin our nostalgic journey through the 2010s as we begin to close this chapter. Uh, so, let's begin with the letter A. Jeremy, do you want to get us started? Yes. A for art of animation. What's that? A, a little <laughs> note here. From its opening in 2012 until December the 16th, 2019, when Disney's Riviera Resort is opening... Art of Animation was the newest resort on property and the only new resort hotel in the 2010s. So Riviera sneaking in here right at the end, but uh, Art of Animation really the only uh, resort of the decade. New resort. We've had a lot of expansions, but new resort. Yeah. Well, it's just so interesting compared to, was it last week we talked about resorts and how we had so many in just the 90s and 2000s? And then this was really, this has been the newest resort for a very long time now. And arguably not even like a new resort per se, because the exoskeleton of it was there for a while. But Yeah, it definitely broke the mold in a lot of ways, though, in the sense that like three-fourths of it are family suites. You know, they're based on just single movies. And there was something about the registration, I remember, that was like different. And they were saying, ooh, some sort of virtual registration or like the you know they had the individual tables at registration or some check-in was somehow different yeah something about an ipad or something who knows yeah this resort um like you said it is kind of break the mold and i'm surprised disney hasn't done this sooner because there are a lot of families that come like large extended family groups that come in so the fact that you know your average hotel can hold what four maybe five people if you really cram in 
that they finally got around to offering a more affordable suites for people. Um, I'm surprised it took them this long. Yeah. And then the flip side of that is the Riviera, which is not affordable. <laughs> that's very true. We'll see if it defines the 2020s. Oh, gosh, that's weird. Is that a, is that a real decade? That doesn't sound real. The roaring. They're going to be roaring again. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Well, for B, we have blogs. Um, so even in the earliest days of the internet, there are certainly ties to Disney. Fans found their communities online in forums or dedicated sites. But I'd say the past decade has really seen the rise of individual blogs, including Disney's own. Um, Disney was inspired to launch its own Parks blog on September 29th, 2009. And the Disney Parks blog has been going strong ever since. Um, and I'd say the blog has really leaned into online content. They've introduced live streams of popular Disney events and nighttime spectaculars. And other blogs have followed since with their own content and even been embraced by Disney to cover special events with media previews, you know, get that content online. Um, so really a symbiotic relationship between Disney's official blogs and the rise of fan sites. Yeah, when Dis- I remember when Disney Parks blog first uh, debuted. And I think yeah. at the beginning, my thought was, oh, they just want to take back control of the content that gets out there. But I've been very pleasantly surprised with, um, s- not totally candid, but s- but sometimes they are very open, like you said, with the live streams and about like, ins- it's just been very informative sometimes, like inside looks at how gingerbread houses are created each year and stuff like that. It's been, they've done a good job with it, I think. And it's a good go-to source of information. I really enjoy what they call the foodie guides. So I feel like as we enter different holidays or certain festivals, you know, they lay out everything that's going to be available to you. So it's a great resource in that regard, too. And even outside the official blog, like there are so many, I don't know how to say this word, niche, niche. Yeah, niche. That's what I would say. Okay, blogs out there about, like, very specific parts of a Disney vacation. You know, like, there are blogs all about the best places to find food if you're a vegan on Disney property. You know, just, like, gosh, you can find a blog for anything out there, even just within the Disney realm. All right, well, that brings us to our next letter, C, which in this case stands for China, which, of course, is... uh, referencing Shanghai Disneyland, which we talked about earlier, but it opened June 16th, 2016. It was the only new park that opened worldwide this decade. And in fact, do you remember the most recent park that opened before this one? Hong Kong? Yeah. So the uh, most recent one to open was in Hong Kong in September of 2005. So it had oh, been, wow. yeah, it had been over a decade since we got in a new park. So Shanghai Disneyland, it's definitely going to be the the new park that defined this decade. Uh, not only because we got a new park, um, but, you know, in sort of the negative uh, flip side of that, uh, in the U.S. at least, there was a lot of talk about um, Shanghai maybe being the reason there were lots of budget cuts here stateside. Like I know hashtag thanks Shanghai was trending for a couple weeks just because every time another cut came or another proposed project was slashed, uh, the mindset was, well, it's because Shanghai is costing so much money. You know how true that is. I'm sure there's a little bit of truth to it, but I'm sure not every single cut was related to Shanghai. Uh, But yeah, Shanghai was definitely a big news moment this decade. Yeah, and not to get too, like, deep into it, but 
it is kind of amazing when you look at the the relationship, particularly with the West and China. Go back just what forty years ago when Nixon was the first president to go to China. Like China was closed off; nobody from the West went there. And now, just in forty short years, which in the grand scope of history is really not that long, we have a Disney park, which is really the poster child of American capitalism. And now we have two, you know, showing up. And Hong Kong's a little, you know, little iffy as far as, you know, China territory. But the fact that Shanghai, I mean, that is in the middle of China. So, uh, you know, it it is pretty significant in the grand scope of history. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, Just a few items that I think, like, really made this park stand out when it opened. A, it doesn't have a railroad. I think this is the first Magic Kingdom-style park to not have a train going around the outside. Enchanted Storybook Castle definitely made news for being easily the largest, most enormous Disney castle we've seen. And then there were certain attractions that I think really uh, made waves with the public. Peter Pan's Flight was sort of revolutionary. They're Pirates of the Caribbean, which is called Battle for the Sunken Treasure. People are still talking about as just this very unique attraction. And of course, it gave us the very first Tron Light Cycle Power Run, which was so popular, it is now coming to the Magic Kingdom in Florida. So some some big iconic attractions over there. Uh, Letter D stands for Disney. Who saw that coming? Springs. (laughs) (laughs) So Disney Springs officially uh, changed and blossomed into uh, what we know it today on September the 29th, 2015, after years of construction right there on Buena Vista Boulevard, what is that, BVD, whatever, Drive, Buena Vista (laughs) Drive, uh, with parking garages and uh, a new facade downtown disney metamorphosized into disney springs and uh, i think it was a change for the better i agree it's been cool for me i moved here in 2014 and when i arrived right behind t-rex was still a parking lot and now that is the town center that's where the bus drop-offs are like multiple shops and restaurants literally right where that parking lot was just five years ago at this point. So to see that transformation has been a lot of fun for me. And I certainly agree. It grew up and we love it. Doug jokes that Disney Springs is his favorite Disney park. (laughs) (laughs) It really is pretty. And oh my gosh, for me, especially like the restaurant game, they stepped it up so much over there. Yeah. And they got the AMC theater, which um, I know a lot of people are like, I'm on vacation. Why do I want to go see a movie? But for a lot of locals, that's a great theater. Um, I like it a lot. And That's our go-to. They're keeping up with the uh, with the entertainment as far as the Lanuba show is going to be changing and forming soon. I think next year it opens, right? Yeah, I think in this the spring there was um, a preview on the Disney Parks blog as we discussed before. So <laughs> there we go. Um, so yeah, you know it, they've had some misses though. You know the NBA experience is is a thing, and. Uh, you know, but you can still go see concerts there. You can at the NBA Experience, <laughs> across from the NBA Experience, actually coming soon. Concerts <laughs> at the NBA Experience. Listen, if it would get people in the door, they'll do it. Okay, that's right. That's right. Talk about a glow up though—the Christmas tree trail. You know, yes, you discuss that every season. 
Oh my gosh, we went uh, on a Sunday night. It was hopping. Oh my goodness, it was packed over there. Well, people love something free, and yeah. uh, it's free. <laughs> yep, yep, and it snows. <laughs> yes. Well, speaking of snow, E brings us to Elsa and Anna. Uh, we've seen quite a few films from Walt Disney Animation within this decade, but I think we can all agree Frozen has had one of the biggest impacts of them. <laughs> the film was released on November 19th, 2013 to critical acclaim and box office success and then that success has led to animated shorts like frozen fever in 2015 Olaf's frozen adventure in 2017 and the most recent theatrical sequel which was released just last month on the park side we saw the addition of frozen summer fun which ran for two summers at disney's hollywood studios in 2014 and 15 and the frozen ever after attraction at epcot a little controversial but opened in 2000 16, as well as a Broadway adaptation that opened um, last year, I believe. Wow. Gosh, it's so much. It's so hard to think that a little over six years ago, we had never heard the song Let It Go. And now we have (laughs) all of this. Yeah, I remember initially seeing Frozen um, because it was like Thanksgiving weekend or thereabout when it was released. And uh, I remember being like, wow, that was a really good movie. And then it just exploded. Mm. And I still remember that first Christmas, how like Disney stores around the country were having lotteries to buy Frozen merchandise. So you had to show up and put your name in the hat just for the opportunity to give them money. Like that blew my mind. <laughs> and, and then we saw, of course, the Frozen backlash because we all got a little tired of it. And then it kind of simmered. And then we were like, oh, yeah, Frozen is actually pretty good. We forgot how good it was because we were just having it crammed down our throats. And let me tell you, Olaf's Frozen Adventure, while we all initially hated it, and rightfully so, rewatch it. Yeah. It is so endearing. And uh, I think we've watched it three times this Christmas season already. It's on the on the Disney positive. So check it out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it, too. I, I took my nephew to see Frozen Sing Along because he wanted to see it this week. And, you know, they have the Christmas overlay. And I, he had never seen that short. So when the songs were playing, I think he was very confused. It's <laughs> like, I've never heard this song. I don't think this really exists in the Frozen canon. But I think by the end of it, he was like, I want to watch that short. These are great songs. So, yeah, officially the highest grossing animated film of all time. Frozen. All right, that brings us to F. Ironically, does not stand for Frozen because we've already done that. We had to get creative with our letters here. Uh, F, in this case, stands for Floats. And that is a reference to parades. And the reason I wanted to talk about parades in the 2010s was, I think because this decade we saw what I think will be the new normal, I guess, for Disney parades. And that's um, the fact that we got, like, instead of slightly updating parades or repurposing old floats, like Disney has become very accustomed to doing, this this decade, the Disney parks gave us extravagant new parades that were fully made from scratch on both coasts. And they sort of redefined what I think Disney parades could be moving forward because we got these larger than life floats that um, are going to be part of parts of parades that I think will last for much longer than the parades we've seen in the past, which would last for one or two years before 
being repurposed into something else. So there are three, notably, Mickey's Sensational Parade debuted in 2011 and ran until just earlier this summer over at Disneyland. Got all new floats for that uh, new soundtrack. Over in the Magic Kingdom, I, I have not been going to the Magic Kingdom for as long as some people, but as far as I know, Festival of Fantasy Parade, which debuted in 2014, I mean, definitely, is this not one of the first, like, all-new parades we've gotten during the daytime there? It had definitely been a long time with whatever the Snow Globe Parade was. I feel like <laughs> that, the name just kept changing. Yeah. Because um, I remember my, you know, my family would go to Disney pretty often, but we would rope drop, kind of leave midday, go to the pool, come back. Because we were like, well, we've already, we've seen this parade, the Snow Globe one. So I was excited when I arrived in 2014. I was like, it's a brand new parade. I'm going to be ready at three o'clock and watch it. Yeah. And once again, going back to the blogs, I specifically remember being online and Disney Parks blog releasing some concept art for these floats. And the audience reaction was huge just because these were brand new floats that were very, very extravagant, like the Maleficent float. Um, Just unlike anything we'd really seen during a daytime parade in the Magic Kingdom. Uh, And finally, I want to talk about Paint the Night because, you know, Main Street Electrical Parade and for a brief time, Spectro Magic were about the only two nighttime parades we had seen in the decades of having a nighttime parade at the Disney parks. And this Paint the Night, we got a new soundtrack that sort of made reference to Main Street Electrical Parade in a sweet way, but was also very new and very modern. And the floats were very modern and very cool. Um, and it seems like it's already gone and it may, you know, it may come back eventually. Um, but such a grand parade to have lasted for such a short time. So those three parades definitely define this decade, I think. Such a great parade, Paint the Night. And you forgot to mention the Main Street Electrical Parade is coming back. Ah! <laughs> Wait, is it? Oh, no, that's just always Disney's like oh. go to. Like, <laughs> you could just to say it, though, and like it wouldn't, wouldn't be too far off. They're like, we're taking this away, but we're bringing back the Main Street Electrical Parade. Ah! I saw a tweet once that said the Main Street Electrical Parade is like the child of divorced parents that just keeps being schlepped back and forth <laughs> between the East Coast and the West Coast. So like, true. Oh, it's so true. Oh, baby. <laughs> Um, I think while we're talking about parades, I think it is important to note, or at least interesting to note, that this now is the longest the Magic Kingdom has ever gone without a nighttime parade. Like, it's almost become normal to walk to to not expect a parade at night. But that's that's so different from what we were used to in years past. There was always a nighttime parade, sometimes twice in one night at the Magic Kingdom, and now we haven't had one since 2016. Yeah, parades are interesting, at least from a business standpoint, because when you think about it, they cost a lot of money, and then they don't make any money. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, but if they you... go away, you can sell merch. Ah, uh, that's why they keep bringing back the Main Street Electrical Parade <laughs> because then they can promote the final day of the Main Street Electrical Parade. They have all these final performance t-shirts in the back that they gotta sell so they gotta keep bringing it back and canceling it so they can get rid of them yeah that poor thing's been hoard out more than anything i just let it die just let it die uh number g or letter g uh <laughs> gondolas 
gondolas. They showed up on Disney property. It was announced in July of 2017 and officially opened September the 29th, 2019. It's a great fanfare. And in the short three months that we've had these gondolas, uh, they've uh, gone through a roller coaster of their own. <laughs> yes, indeed. So this thing was a pretty expansive project. It cost, um, I want to say, half a half a billion dollars. Is that how much they spent on these? I never heard a number. No. Okay. Well, it was expensive, regardless. Maybe not half a billion. Maybe it was, <laughs> you know, like a hundred million. But it, it was it was a, a large chunk of change. And you got to figure. I mean, these things cover a lot of acreage. Um, so there's pylons at least every. Oh, what do you say? Every like uh, thirty yards, there there's something fifty yeah. yards. Half a football field, you know. There's a big pole that has to, you know, and connected by a wire. Um, and they they go a lot of a lot of acreage, like I said, and uh, a lot of fanfare behind them. I know people are kind of jumping on the gondola, the Skyliner, uh, also known as um, fan wagon. I guess you could say the hype train. The hype train. There you go. Um, you know, this is sort of like the new monorail, in my opinion, uh, because the monorail, there was always these rumors that it was going to be expanded. But monorail track is got to be more expensive to build than the Skyliner because those poles are only like every 10 feet. Um, so, yeah, you know, and and the beam that the, the monorail actually runs on, like it's just so hefty. Yeah, I heard a rumor through the grapevine that um, that they're thinking about new monorails. But the new monorail designs, the, they don't fit on the track that we have, like the new cars. So that's they're trying problem. <laughs> to figure that out, yeah. But who knows if that's true or false. But anyways, back to gondolas. Gondolas are a thing. Of course, you know, the incident that happened, uh, what was it, just like a week or two after they officially opened. And they had the little collision there at the uh, Riviera station. And it shut it down, and people were stranded for hours, and it got national attention, which I'm sure Disney loved. But, uh, you know, it existed, and it happened, and now they've been running since without incident, knock on wood. And I think people enjoy this, and it's something free. You can ride the gondolas and not pay a dime. Yeah. I mean, Courtney, how long did it take us to get from Hollywood Studios to Epcot the other night, including having to switch lines in the middle of it? It's definitely less than 15 minutes. Yeah. It's so convenient. Well, a lot of those gondolas feature different characters, and that would include our next letter H for heroes. And that is, of course, referring to our Marvel heroes. So the Marvel side of this Disney decade began the night before. Disney's takeover of Marvel Entertainment was approved December 31st, 2009, which included the rights to over 5,000 characters. While the Marvel Cinematic Universe predates the Disney acquisition, the majority of those films were released within the past 10 years, beginning with Marvel's The Avengers in 2012 and culminating in Avengers Endgame earlier this year. There have been 17 films distributed by Walt Disney Studios, um, and even the small screen has seen its fair share of Marvel content, with shows like Agent Carter airing on the Disney-owned ABC network, and there's sure plenty to look forward to in the next de decade, like the upcoming Black Widow film and multiple Disney Plus series. We haven't had any Marvel really here at Walt Disney World, but we do have the Guardians of the Galaxy attraction to look forward to in the next decade. Um, but over on the West Coast, we have Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, 
and the announced expanded Marvel Land there. Um, and over in Hong Kong Disneyland, there is an Iron Man and Ant-Man attraction. And and there's a Guardians of the Galaxy gondola. That's true. That's what, <laughs> that's where I was going with it. That's right. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, my gosh. Marvel dominated this decade, at least on the big screen. I mean, the MCU is one of the most well-crafted, long-game movie franchises ever, unarguably, you know? In fact, I saw earlier today that of the 10 highest-grossing films of all time, all four Avengers movies are in the top 10. Wow. Oh, it has to be. Has to it's, be. It's, it's crazy, yeah, because Endgame's number one, and then you've got Avengers, Age of Ultron, and Infinity War, and they're all in the top ten. And then Black Panther's number 11. It's wow. just insane. That's That was a good acquisition. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, the bubble doesn't seem to be bursting anytime soon, Mm-mm. so. No, 5,000 characters. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know that I could name them, but that's what Disney A to Z Encyclopedia told me. Well, I think that's what made it so smart is that right away they went into these obscure characters that we've never heard of. Like for me personally, Guardians of the Galaxy was something I had never heard of. And now it's like a household name, you know, because they did just such a good job with it. Doctor Strange. I mean, even Iron Man to an extent was not. I know that was before Disney, but that was not a household name by any means. No, I feel like when people originally heard Marvel, you immediately think Spider-Man. Sure. Yeah. Not Ant-Man. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about, um, like, uh, Big Hero 6? Wasn't that a Marvel property, too, that was sort of expanded? That does. Yeah. Good, good call. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so H is for Hero, H-E-R-O, and Hero, H-I-R-O. <laughs> there we go. It all ties together. All right. Well, that takes us to the letter I, which stands for Instagram or the Instagram culture. Now, do you guys know what year Instagram as an app actually released? 2008? It's actually 2010. It was this decade, which is so hard to believe. I remember when when the gram came out and I was like, why do I need this? I I have Facebook. (laughs) That's every app. And yet here I am, an Instagram influencer, as we sit here, so. Yeah, I, that's what I've always said about you. Um, yeah, it released October 6th, 2010. Uh, as a result, it gave birth to, as you said, Instagram influencers, who are uh, people who use their Instagram page to promote a particular lifestyle. And very prevalent in the area of Instagram influencers were the lifestyles of Disney park goers. I think that has definitely taken over, not taken over, but it's been a huge aspect of that Instagram culture. And as a result, Instagram became a very popular platform to help popularize and sell things like specialty food items at the park. Those have become a really good photographic element of people's Instagram pages. Uh, Popcorn buckets and sippers, those have been huge on Instagram. Limited time ears or colors like the Arendelle Aqua and what's the new bronze one? I think it's Bell Bronze. Bell Bronze. Something like that, yeah. Uh, Spirit jerseys have been huge over on Instagram. And and I do sometimes wonder how popular would these things be if it weren't for Instagram. And of course, that definitely applies to 
walls throughout Disney oh, yeah. parks. We, we 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 don't I don't I don't work in marketing, but I guarantee we live in a culture where any marketing firm now is saying, how is this going to look on social media? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 15 years ago, Disney painted a wall purple and thought, oh, this is a cool wall. And now because of Instagram, like, they have a Disney Photo Pass person stationed at the wall. And if it weren't for Instagram, there's no way that would be the case. And I know they've kind of leaned into it now because they'll be like, everybody look at this wall. Wouldn't this be great for Instagram? <laughs> yeah, they're purposely designing walls now and trying to make it like like the Avatar wall, like the Moss wall. Is that it? Like, come on, get out of here. <laughs> I mean, it's a nice spot, but it worked. It did. Yeah, they even put out a Disney blog post about like what, like the 10 Instagrammable walls on Disney property. You can get the walls as a phone case at the DTEC on demand. They are true. Yeah, the purple wall is a is a is a windbreaker. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Uh, there are some good ones though. Even Galaxy's Edge has a few really great walls. Um, it's just you ha- you can't deny that Instagram defined this decade because it literally did not exist before this decade. So very true. Very true. And um, my last post has a hundred and four likes. So. I don't take the title influencer lightly. <laughs> <laughs> but you just posted it a second ago. Yeah, well, like, like 12 hours ago. But whatever. <laughs> oh, okay. Semantics. <laughs> uh, letter J stands for... This is a stretch. Uh, it stands for Java. Listen, there were like 20 <laughs> options for the letter S. So we had to <laughs> distribute. That's true. Um, so Java, a, a nice cup of Joe, if you would. Um, so in April of 2012, Starbucks announced it was coming to all six U.S. theme parks. And eventually it made its way to downtown Disney, which is now Disney Springs. The first one opened at DCA in June of 2012, so just a couple months later. I remember this being very controversial when it came out because – People thought this was going to be the gateway drug to corporate America and all these third-party stores infiltrating the Magic Kingdom. And then, if I remember correctly, shortly before or shortly after, we had Sunglass Hut come into Adventureland. Do you guys remember this? Oh, yes. And that was a big deal as well. So, But Starbucks made its way into the parks. And I think what kind of relieved everyone's uh, mind was that they seemed to – adapt to the surroundings that they were put in. So it wasn't like, you know, corporate 2019 Starbucks being placed on Main Street, but they were put into the Main Street Bakery. And over at, uh, like, Animal Kingdom, they were in the, is that Creature Comforts that they're in? Mm-hmm. So, you know, they kind of adapted into the building. They didn't bring the building to the park. So true. Yeah, I agree with that. And who doesn't need a nice coffee, you know, a nice iced coffee throughout the day? I know Derek does. I absolutely times. do. <laughs> I believe it was 2015 when they released the You Are Here mugs. And that, I mean, ever since then, that has been such a huge draw uh, as far as souvenirs go. Like those Starbucks mugs that are specifically designed to the park they're in. I mean, still one of my favorite souvenirs. I have, you know, half a collection in my in my cabinet my cupboard if you will Um, they got a little greedy with those mugs in my opinion but they they have redesigned them way more often than is necessary but that first year like i know everybody was going wild over them 
Yeah, I got the first six, and then they tried to redesign them, and, oh, this is the second edition. I'm like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> I have, I'm with you. I have the first six, and then I was like, I'm okay. Yeah, because now it's not even you are here. It was, uh, oh, what's it called? I don't remember. The series is not called You Are Here anymore. It's called I Was There <laughs> or something. Oh, I care. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a totally different series now. And it looks more like pencil sketches. I don't know if you can picture what I'm talking about, but. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's the like. The design has changed. Yeah. Here's a mug from a place you didn't go and I did. <laughs> well, you know right. where I keep my mugs? In my kitchen. <laughs> that brings us to letter K for kitchens and kiosks. Um, in this case, though, we're referring to the festivals at Epcot, which have seen an expanded presence within the last 10 years. The Epcot International Food and Wine Festival and Flower and Garden Festival are, of course, longstanding traditions beginning in 1995 and 1993, respectively. But the Flower and Garden Festival did not incorporate a food element until 2013 when those outdoor kiosks resurfaced and were added to World Showcase, kind of bringing food into Flower and Garden. Following the success of these festivals, the Festival of the Arts premiered in 2017 and Epcot's celebration of holidays around the world was officially dubbed the Epcot International Festival of the Holidays last year. And I would say based on how many of these kiosks and festivals there are now, the outdoor kitchens almost feel like a permanent addition to the parks. Totally. Yeah, it's almost weird when they're not there. So like two months in June and uh, July, you're like, Where'd they go? Yeah. <laughs> and some of them look legit nice. Like, they're not just little countertops with a little... It's not like a lemonade stand you'd pass by on the street. These are, like, solid buildings that fit the theme of the country they're near. Yes. I'm sure Disney planned that. Like, what are what can we add to the park to where we don't have to tear these down every six months? <laughs> I'll be heading to the Festival of the Holidays this afternoon, and I'm excited to get my sushi tree in Japan. I'll be sure to Instagram it as well. Uh, tell me more. Um, it's sushi, but it's shaped like a Christmas tree. Okay, I guess I <laughs> put that together. Uh, but like, in how many? I don't know what more you want. <laughs> how, how many rolls do you get? It's just like a big piece of rice shaped like a tree, but then decorated with sushi oh. elements. Maybe like some cucumber, like well, like salmon as the ornaments. I was picturing like five rolls on the bottom, then four on top, and then three on top, and then two. You know, I like your idea better. Because <laughs> it would be green on the outside. So, yeah. anyway, all right, let's move on to the letter L, stands for live action remakes. And of course, we're talking about the remakes of animated films. So, back in 1996, we got 101 Dalmatians, which I guess there was a Jungle Book before that. But 101 Dalmatians was really the first, like, oh, look, we took an animated film, we added live actors, live dogs, and then it was popular, so they made a sequel in 2000, 102 Dalmatians. But between then and 2010, as far as I know, there were no live-action remakes of animated films. But then in 2010, we got a huge one. It's easy for me to forget this sometimes, but when Alice in Wonderland released in theaters with Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter and Anne Hathaway, like, this shattered box office records. Like, at the time, it became the fifth highest grossing film of all time. 
Now, since then, it's dropped down to like forty something, I believe. Uh, oh, but, wow. in, but yeah, but after, but that's how that's how popular the 2010s were in movies. Um, but yeah, fifth highest grossing movie of all time. And just since then, in two thousand in the two thousand tens, we got Maleficent, Cinderella, The Jungle Book, an Alice in Wonderland sequel. We got Beauty and the Beast, which was also very very popular at the box office. Christopher Robin could be considered a live action remake. And then this year alone, we got four. We got Dumbo, Aladdin, The Lion King, Lady and the Tramp, and. A Maleficent sequel, which is not really a remake because it was an original story. Um, but these are becoming so popular and it doesn't look like they're stopping because we're getting Mulan, we're getting The Little Mermaid. Like, they just keep coming. And I think Disney has found a surefire way of making money. So why stop now? Yeah, people complain about this, but you still go and see them. So, <laughs> yeah. Guilty, guys. All of those. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, I haven't seen Lady in the Tramp. But I will say, of the three I saw, two were duds, and Aladdin I liked. So, although I say that the Lion King, it, I keep just dropping numbers, but the Lion King currently is the seventh highest grossing film of all time. Yes, but it was also named the worst film of 2019. <gasps> Ooh, by who? I forget who. It was like Rolling Stone or some oh. some big movie list, you know, like the the ten worst films of the decade or the the year, and it was number one. It's so. nominated for best animated feature um, for the Golden Globes, but then it's up against Toy Story four and Frozen two. So it'll be interesting to see what plays out this year. Well, if it's nominated for best animated film, maybe it shouldn't make our list of live action remakes. Oops. <laughs> it's okay because like it kept to be build is that though like yeah. I didn't even think when I just said that but like it was photorealistic and in that same vein yeah. the golden globes are always a joke anyways like only 70 people vote on them like why do we care I agree I agree I could find 70 people that like the Maleficent sequel <laughs> anyways uh, so yeah live action that doesn't seem to be slowing down so get ready for 2020 um, M M stands for My Magic Plus. Uh, so after a long and very extensive development period, the My Magic Plus finally rolled out in 2013. This included the introduction of magic bands, things like FastPass Plus, the uh, the app, the My Disney Experience uh, app, and the PhotoPass Memory Maker um, RFID entry was also added to the resort hotel rooms. So now literally everything you need in your wallet is now available on your wrist. I think it's been a good addition. I was here kind of shortly after it rolled out and it's been cool to see how even it's grown within the app. Um, you know, like being able to open your hotel room door with it rather than just the magic band. Like even within a span of, I guess, what, three or four years, it's like magic band. Now it's all on the phone, but it's all tied to that concept of my magic bus. I think it took a lot of education for the public mm -hmm. to accept. I think maybe longer than what Disney expected. Um, but now it's almost second nature. Like, oh, yeah, I got my magic band. Like, you know, no big deal. And it, whether you're an annual pass holder, you're a cast member, anything like that, all of that can be tied there. I do think the app is still way behind as far as being user-friendly and easy to understand and easy to use, particularly when it comes to um, fast passes and those kind of things. Like it's just, it's not 
easy. You know, I'm actually going to defend it. I've had zero problems with the app for months now. I'm actually really pleased with how far it's come. Yeah, but I just think that there's so much clicking involved when it comes to to making fast passes. Like it should be easier by now. I will be the first to admit that I thought Magic Vans were the stupidest thing. <laughs> When they announced that you have to wear bracelets around the park, I was like, I absolutely refuse to do that. And now I can't imagine not having a magic band on. I know you don't need one because you can use your ticket, but I'm like, it's so convenient. It's so easy to do that. Once they did the second generation of magic bands, that little icon in the middle comes out and they sold those keychains that hold them. And that's what's on my keys now. So it's like, I always have, quote, the magic band with me because it's just, it's right there on my keys. Can't go anywhere without them. Yeah. Do you remember when they came out, they only had like the initial like four or five colors and then it became a thing on the internet that you could buy skins and like sticker your skin over your magic band. And then Disney was like, what a great idea. Why aren't we doing this ourselves? And now you can have almost any character or any park icon or anything like that on your magic band. Now we've come a long way. There's a baby Yoda magic band. We saw it last night. Yeah, I couldn't. I mean, Sorry, I there's two baby Yoda oh, magic bands. I hadn't heard that. Uh, now, you talked about how much did the gondolas cost, and we were kind of unsure. But I do remember hearing that this whole project was over a billion dollars. And I do remember all of the growing pains it went through because it, it's a very high concept thing. So it's no wonder that it took years and a lot of money to finally get right. It'll be exciting to see where it all goes in the next decade. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think by now they're, they're, they're realizing that it was worth the investment. Call me sentimental, but I still miss the old paper fast passes. Ah, get out of here, Grandpa. <laughs> you Really? You don't? I mean, there was nothing more exhilarating than like, Okay, we're going to get to the park, we're going to run to Splash Mountain and get our Fast Passes, and then we're going to run over to Pirates. And Yeah, you run all the way to Splash Mountain, and it says, oh, the return time's not till 8. Uh, yeah, I don't want to do that. I like pre-planning. It took me a while, because I was very much, you know, set in my ways. But I feel like, you know, back in the day, they ran out when they ran out. But now if I know I'm going to have people in town, if I had showed up with guests after work, there would be no fast passes left for rock and roller coaster by 5 p.m. But planning in advance, I'm like, all right, well, I'll get off of work at five. Oh, look, here's a 6.30 p.m. fast pass. I'm set. We have it. We're good to go. Um, I like the security of that. Agreed. Well, there is a place that you can use your magic bands, and that is letter N for nighttime at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Okay, that segue was a stretch. <laughs> I, they're going to get just stretchier and stretchier, but I'm trying, okay? The park is celebrating its second decade, but it has really grown up over the most recent one. Uh, we had the addition of Pandora, of course, but prior to that, in 2016, the park regularly... Cr- closed, you know, sometimes as early as five or six, um, but starting in May 2016, one year before Pandora, the world of Avatar was set to open, Disney announced that the park would be open past dusk and include new nighttime experiences. There's a new way to see your favorite animals at Kilimanjaro Safaris. 
the Tree of Life came to life with its special awakenings. Um, that summer, there was the Jungle Book, Alive with Magic. We hardly knew her, but <laughs> she was there ahead of Rivers of Light, which is now the official nighttime show. And of course, in 2017, Pandora with its bioluminescent decorations, I think, you know, really added a whole new element to this park. I love this park at night so much. And it's hard to think that we went 15 years without it. I feel like it was like a teenage, like it became a teenager this decade. Like <laughs> staying you out, stay late. out after dark. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Curfews extended. No longer, you know, past that awkward phase and, and trying to like become itself and, and glowing up. <laughs> Glow. Ah, I do get it. Yeah. Good stuff. I I do notice the atmosphere changes a little bit too. Like it's such a quiet park just in mm. general. You know, no fireworks, no live shows going on everywhere. I mean, there are some. But after dark, you just hear all the animal sounds and everyone's kind of hushed and the lighting is sort of dim at every single land. Uh, it's almost romantic. Wow. <laughs> you went there. Like the romance of nature. Mm, gotcha. Mm, yeah. Good save. All right. Well, I have no segue. So we're just going to move on to the letter <laughs> Oh, you know, maybe while you're waiting in line for Everest at night, you can open up your phone and launch the app Disney Plus for the letter O, which stands for on-demand streaming. Now, Disney Plus has only been around a month now, which is so crazy to think about because I still feel like people are constantly talking about what do you watch on Disney Plus? Have you watched the latest episode of The Mandalorian? I want to watch so and so. Hey, check Disney Plus. It might be on there. And it's only been around for a month, but it, it was announced, I think, in 2017 or 2018 that Disney was working on the streaming service. So it's sort of been in the public mindset for a while now. And um, of course, there, there's news later that we'll talk about um, with certain acquisitions that Disney was trying to make so that way they could sort of. Um, packet fuller you know have a more complete library by the time the streaming service launched uh but yeah disney plus gave us lots to lots of things to talk about and as we've mentioned several times with baby yoda it has given us numerous memes and gifts that people who haven't even subscribed to disney plus are very very familiar with by this point yeah, I think when this was first announced, it was one of those things where I was like, I kind of knew this was going to happen eventually, um, especially with the popularity of Netflix and Hulu. And I think Disney took their time with it and learned the lessons that perhaps other streaming service, services learned you know, along the way and took those to heart. And I'm glad they took their time with it because when it finally did launch, I think it was worth the hype. And I think overall, the streaming has been a prevalent part of this decade, not only on the Disney side, but before Disney Plus, you were able to find that content on places like Netflix and Hulu. Yeah, very true. It, it gave people a chance to like dive back into the Disney library and and see things in their home that maybe they wouldn't have had the chance to otherwise. I tell you, I remember when Netflix was, you know, you sent it in the mail and you had to wait like two or three days for you to get your next selection. And then they offered, started offering streaming. And I remember thinking, when am I ever going to use this? My internet isn't fast enough for this. We've come a long way, baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that that's, makes me sound like that was like 30 years ago. It really <laughs> was like seven years ago. It wasn't that long ago. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
Uh, letter P. Projection mapping. Uh, again, something that feels like it's been around for much longer than what it actually has, but really projection mash. Projection Mapping made its debut with The Magic, The Memories, and You in 2011. And this uh, was the first major use of this uh, technology on the castle. And it has since morphed into many incarnations since then. Um, Other examples that you might see with Projection Mapping, including on the audio animatronics in the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train at Frozen Ever After. You see this during the Happily Ever After fireworks show. Once Upon a Time, which is the current incarnation of the Castle Projection Show, Sunset Seasons Greetings, which features it on the Tower of Terror, and uh, a lot of various shows on the Chinese Theater. Also at Epcot, um, the new Epcot Preview Center features a lot of this projection mapping that is really seamless. At Tree of Life, oh my gosh, we stayed for the uh, the new Christmas Tree of Life Awakening show the other day. I mean, it might be the best example of this I've ever seen. It was seamless. It, it's like I how think the tree is the best one. Oh too. my gosh! And this new Christmas show, they were making like little winter wintry wonderland scenes on the tree, and it's like you forget you're looking at the tree. It's insane. Yeah, I think this never fails. Whenever that rocket takes off on Cinderella Castle during these shows, and the crowd goes, woo, every time. It never fails. I I do think they've, in just the last few, maybe the last year, they've sort of gotten back to finding that right balance of, yes, we can do projection mapping, but don't forget there's also fireworks and other things to look at. I think when this technology first debuted, it was like, we don't need to do anything else. We can just map the whole thing. And it's just like, a you're just watching a movie. That's great. But like, as, you know, as guests, we want more than just that. I found that the new fireworks at the Christmas party this year are a really nice blend of that. Like it did seem to harken back to like the Christmas wishes where I was more focused on the fireworks. But what was going on in the castle wasn't essential for me to view in terms of any narrative or story, but it did enhance what was going on along with the music. Good. Whereas yeah. happily ever after, I feel like you like have to look at the castle and they're like, oh wait, there's fireworks. Right. I'd agree with that. Yeah. I think the Christmas show was what I was referring to because having watched it on YouTube, I was I was pleasantly surprised by that. And uh, out at Disneyland, I feel like they're really focusing on the projection mapping. Um, in fact, I was talking with our friend Jeff DePauli about this and how the fireworks are really sort of being pushed back at Disneyland a lot in favor of the projection mapping. Maybe it's the neighborhood or whatever, but um, even when we saw the the 60th anniversary fireworks, there's a lot of projection mapping, not only on the castle, but also all the way down Main Street. They had the different projections. So. Well, I'll tell you where else you can find it, not just on those park icons. And that's our letter Q, which is cues with interactive elements. So at the beginning of this decade, Disney recognized the need for an enhanced guest experience and improving the cues that guests wait in became a prominent solution. So this began in late 2009 when games debuted at the newly renovated Space Mountain at Walt Disney World, but all subsequent improvements have occurred within the past decade. Uh, Classics like The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, Haunted Mansion, Big Thunder Mountain, and Peter Pan's Flight all received corresponding updates in 2010, 2011, 2013, and 2015. Like Space Mountain, Test Track underwent a large 
renovation and reopened with new interactive elements in 2012. And even new attractions have opened with those interactive elements as well, like the Little Mermaid, Ariel's Undersea Adventure in 2011, and Seven Dwarfs Mine Train in 2014. Yeah. You know what? Are these done now? I don't know, because I was going to say the latest generation of cues ties directly into something we might talk about next. Okay. Um, that's true. That's true. We can get to that. But like even even Pandora didn't really open with interactive cues. No. Yeah, I felt like nice stretch there, but I guess time will tell. Interesting. I was never a fan of them. No? No. Because to me... They they always were either half broken or just almost pandering in a way. I love the Peter Pan one. I was gonna I was just about to say I think Peter Pan is the best iteration because it doesn't require you to like make loud noises and bang on things. It just has like little touches of magic that you can control. And it's you know, it's kind of a show going on around you and then like you said, there's like one portion where you're controlling it, whereas I feel like, you know, sometimes like the buttons at Space Mountain. Like, it was like, no, but you need to keep moving. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, they, they don't rip those out. They, no more. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the Soren queue that was interactive? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure if I should include that or not. I don't think it's that count. That was the sole reason I hated Soren for years. <laughs> because of that dumb queue. Everybody looking like a bird. Going <laughs> to the right, going to the left. Um... I always thought they, they had them big screens. Just pipe in some Disney shorts while we're waiting. I would much rather watch that than try to hit the beach ball to the other screen. Oh my gosh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Or they should show like famous scenes from movies where people are flying or something. I would totally watch that. Yeah, or like a goofy short, like how to be a pilot. You know, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or I feel like the most recent Mickey Mouse shorts on YouTube, they take place in a lot of different countries, and I enjoy yeah. consideration. Mm, definitely. There you go. Or just play uh, Planes, Fire, and Rescue. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> okay. Or, or maybe not. <laughs> yeah, so now, now that we're talking about it, I do wonder if this was sort of a fad of the 2010s, but now it's like, eh, we don't need that because we can just make the cues really, really pretty and people still appreciate it. Or make them cueless ah huh. all right well moving on now to our letter r it stands for role playing so not only can you interact with the cues but you can interact with the park itself now with these games that have been added to various parks at walt disney world and disneyland where you become part of the action. And I think this sort of started in 2009 with the Kim Possible World Showcase Adventure, which used customized flip phones to allow you to become a sleuth and solve these clues and complete an activity and probably maybe get a prize at the end. I actually don't remember if that's the case. Uh, but you become part of the action and you have a role to play. And this continued throughout the decade with Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom, where you use cards throughout the Magic Kingdom to set off these screens and um, become a sorcerer. What do you, what are you in Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom? I don't even know. 
I don't know I either. I have never <laughs> okay. played it in my life. I played it for about five minutes and thought, that's cute, and I get the appeal, but I'm not going to finish my mission. Um, but it is very popular still, Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom. Uh, Kim Possible World Showcase Adventure in 2012 became Agent P's World Showcase Adventure, and we just learned that very soon it will become a DuckTales-themed adventure. I'm hyped for DuckTales. Yeah, that I think that that's such a great theme for this. Yeah. Uh, I think this also extends to Animal Kingdom, where you can now become a wilderness explorer, and they, they sort of took a more... Um, academic or educational route with this one where you are part of it and it is interactive but you actually learn things about the environment and nature and animals by becoming a wilderness explorer and I think the Play Disney Parks app also fits into this category of role playing where beginning just last year they they debuted this app where while waiting in queues and riding attractions you can open up this app and interact with the environment around you it's interesting to me that the um, the one at Animal Kingdom is the only one that's not electronic, which seems not as environmentally friendly to printing out all these books every day, but whatever. <laughs> okay, that's that's an interesting take. Well, I mean, I, I actually like the book concept. I like the idea that you get to take something home with you. So Yeah, yeah same. Um, and I guess you get to take the cards home with Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom, but they you're right, they do heavily rely on the screens throughout the park. Which takes us, speaking of screens, I don't know, uh, now we're going to uh, go to letter S, which is a little franchise you may not have heard of. It's uh, called, am I saying this correctly, Star Wars? <laughs> is that how you say it? Uh, I think I've heard of that, yeah. Well, of course, Star Wars has been around since uh, 1977 when... A New Hope was released, but in 2012, Disney announced that they had purchased Lucasfilm for a, you know, a bargain at $4 billion, and then they announced a new film for 2015. Uh, do you all remember when this all was announced, and then when they announced The Force Awakens? Oh yeah, my first, I remember thinking like, holy crap, I get to see a Star Wars movie in the theater. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when they announced The Force Awakens, and all I wanted to... I was sitting in my office. I was in Miami at the time, and I had the live stream up, and I was just, like, freaking out. And my boss was like, what, what? And I'm like, new Star Wars, new Star Wars. And he was like, okay. <laughs> but uh, anyway, since then, not only did we get a new film, we got several new films, uh, multiple new films, in fact, a new animated series, two new lands, uh, a new live-action series on Disney+, Plus. you know, with the breakout star of baby yoda um a new upcoming resort and much much more hmm. like it, it's never ending i think well I, it may not be never ending but it's definitely slowed down so yeah that's funny in just those four years we really saw it like take off and then sort of reach a backlash and now it's come down just a little bit but we'll see how this uh, latest movie opening goes just a few days away Oh, it's going to be huge. I mean, yeah. even if you hated everything that has been done thus far, you're at least going to see the completion, I would yeah. think. Um, but yeah, I think that with The Mandalorian is probably a sleeper hit that they didn't expect you know, to be as popular as what it is. Um, but then again, like you said, we saw the backlash with Solo, which in my opinion is a great movie. But I think people were just overloaded with Star Wars at that point because, you know, getting a new film every year was a little much. It is funny that 
I mean, in my mind, at least, I, I 1,000% tie Star Wars to Disney. And, you know, seven, seven years ago, that wasn't really the case at all, except for the one ride. Man, I remember our first time going, and I'm thinking, why is there Star Wars in Disney parks? That's so weird, you know? Like, why? what is this? And so now, it, like you said, now I can't, I can't separate the two in my mind anymore. But I felt the same way about Marvel. I was like, ah, oh, superheroes, oh, that's a universal thing. Get out of here. And now oh. it's like, oh, yeah, Marvel is definitely, definitely a, uh, a, a Disney thing. When you went on Star Tours the first time, was it still the one with Rex or was it the updated version? No, no, no. We saw we saw the original version. In fact, I can remember when they updated to Star Star Tours 2.0. And speaking of the Disney Parks blog, I entered to be one of the first to ride it. Ooh. And I got selected to go. It was like there was like 100 people selected and everybody could bring one guest. And they brought us in at like midnight the night it, before it actually officially opened. And we got to ride it over and over. It was cool. That's awesome. So speaking of Rex, we were right by Rex, the DJ at the cantina. So I was explaining to my nephew that he used to pilot, uh, what's it called? Starship, Star Speeder? Star Speeder. Yeah. Uh, because now it's C-3PO. And I guess our server heard me talking about it. So she was explaining to me like the real story of how he actually crashed on <gasps> Batu. Tell me. Yeah. So I forget all the details, but she said that she, he, his, his ship before they, uh, fixed it and made C-3PO the the accidental pilot, I guess. He actually crashed it on Batu, and you can see his crash site. Um, I forget where it is. I think it's just after you enter the land from Toy Story Land. But if you look over in the rock work, there is definitely the wreckage of a ship, and it is Rex's ship, and <gasps> they, they made him the DJ at the cantina. I love that. I love just seeing him at the cantina. Like that was a highlight of the experience for me. But to hear the backstory behind it is even better. Well, that's DJ Rex. And there's another Rex in the Disney canon. And that's in letter T for Toy Story. I told you, they're just going to get worse. No, that was A plus gold. You're going places, though. <laughs> Thank You're you. way better than me. <laughs> well, but in the 1990s, we got two Toy Story films, and then we went without one for 11 years. But in 2010, we had the premiere of Toy Story 3, you know, starting off the decade, and then rounding out the decade over the summer, Toy Story 4. But in between, there's been a lot of Toy Story content as well. There were three Toy Story 2 short films, Small Fry and Hawaiian Vacation in 2011, and Partysaurus Rex in 2012 as well as the television specials Toy Story of Terror and the Toy Story The Time Forgot in 2013 and 2014. Also in this decade are four Toy Story-themed lands worldwide. The first was at Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris in 2010, an expansion to Hong Kong Disneyland in 2011, and Shanghai, I kind of like forgot that they added one in 2018 because that was quickly overshadowed by our most recent addition at Disney's Hollywood Studios also in 2018. Yeah, I think it was you who mentioned Toy Story for the list. And I'm like, yeah, well, Toy Story's always been around. But oh my gosh, yeah, totally this decade is when it just blossomed and became what we know it is. I mean, for me, it was a big deal because... Toy Story was the first movie that I saw in theaters when I was a kid in 1995, like, that I remember. And then, I'm going to reveal my age here, but I graduated high school in 2010. So, when Toy Story 3 came out, Andy was going away to college that fall, and so was I. Mm. So, I was like, whoa. Grew up with this, but then, like, 
you know, it was kind of absent for about 10 years. So it was a big deal for me when it came back. Yeah, I remember my reaction was opposite for, for 3 and 4. Because when 3 came out, it was like, oh my gosh, I thought Toy Story was done forever. And we're going to get another Toy Story movie. This is so exciting. And then for 4, it was like, but why? You gave us the perfect <laughs> Toy Story film. Yeah. I like that idea. I like that they live on in the different shorts. I forgot to mention, you know, Forky asks a question over on uh, Disney Plus. I am loving. I you know, am obsessed so with Forky. I think that's the perfect medium for these characters is those little shorts. Like you can continue to tell their stories, but it doesn't need to be at feature length. Just a question. Yeah. We have four lands now, like you said, worldwide. Do you think it would be as prevalent in the parks if we had never gotten Toy Story 3? Um, I mean, if toys, if the studios won open in 2010, I feel like it was in development before then. So I feel like they, Toy Story still had, albeit a small presence in the parks, but was still a very popular Pixar, you know, IP because it's the first one like you could always meet Woody and Jesse and Bullseye um, so I would see it because I I feel like it always goes back to Andy so even though you know this expansion at studios opened in 2018 post Toy Story 3 ahead of Toy Story 4 with Bonnie the story is you have shrunk down to the size of a toy and you are in Andy's backyard yeah it's, I mean it's the OG so it's a, it, sure. it was always going to be a popular part of the Walt Disney Company, for sure. Um, well, speaking of those lands, that does segue actually perfectly into the letter U, which in this case stands for Universe Building. Now, I think this was a trend that really, really took off this decade where parks are now building entire lands themed to one fictional universe. So I think this started with the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, which was a massive success for Universal Studios. And I think Disney tried to recreate this. They they felt the need to do this in their own parks to sort of compete with the Wizarding World. So just in this decade, we got things like Cars Land, which completely recreates Radiator Springs in California. We got New Fantasyland, which I think is actually a good example of this, where you walk into these entire areas that are themed to a fictional land from a Disney movie. Then we got Pandora, the World of Avatar in 2017. We got Toy Story Land last summer. And then, of course, on both coasts just this year, we got Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. So I think this was a trend that we really saw a lot of in 2000. And I actually wonder if this will slow down, or excuse me, in the 2010s, I wonder if this will slow down beginning in the 2020s now that Galaxy's Edge was not quite the massive success they hoped it would be. Of course, Rise of the Resistance is starting to change that a little bit now. Um, but I think it will sort of define this decade looking back of building entire lands that are themed to one IP. I don't think it will. I think that this will continue to be sort of the the bread and butter of the Disney company in the parks, because I can't see them going back to Frontierland, where we're going to take different aspects of properties from, you know, the West and bring them in. Um, I think you're going to continue to see things like the Marvel lands, um, 
you know, that kind of thing. I see it twofold. Um, Certainly more prevalence of IP. But yes, like you said, the Marvel Land at DCA. But then Epcot is still having more of like an overall theme of like world nature, world discovery. They're not just calling it one character based thing. So I, I like that there's a balance. Me too. But yeah. if, if if Pirates of the Caribbean was not an attraction, but it was just a film that came out today, we would have Pirates Land. We <laughs> no do doubt. in Shanghai. I was just <laughs> well, thinking yeah. that, yeah. In Shanghai, there's the pirate area. And Tokyo in 2020 is getting the whole expansion to Fantasyland that has the Beauty and the Beast ride and Arendelle and all that. Yeah. It is funny, though, in just this decade, how, how it really shifted because we started with Cars Land, which is an exact replica of the movie. Like you were seeing all of your favorite characters. You were seeing all of your favorite sites from the movie. And then we get to Galaxy's Edge, which is based on Star Wars, but it's a completely new original thing that you've never seen with characters you've never met. Yeah. Letter V. The Villas. As we mentioned earlier with Art of Animation, that was the only... uh, resort to open fresh resort with the exception of the Riviera, which is opening with just like 10 days left in the decade. But that doesn't mean Disney was not expanding their resorts and uh, rooms because we had a lot of villas open up the Disney vacation club, also known as DVC. They added several properties to different Walt Disney world resorts, including things at the grand Floridian, the Polynesian. They had the villas and bungalows added they had Copper Creek villas and cabins, etc., all over. So I think um, towards the beginning of the decade, there was four DVC properties uh, available. And I was speaking actually with a DVC member the other day who said there's something like 15 DVC properties available currently. Wow. Uh, so that definitely blew up over the last decade. And, you know, in a way it makes sense because – Disney vacations are getting more and more expensive. Um, People's wages definitely are not matching the price increases as uh, time goes on. So if you're looking at uh, Disney vacations over long-term time and investment, I think the DVC is probably the way to go. I remember when they opened up the Grand Floridian and just being so charmed by that penguin fountain from Mary Poppins. It's so cute. Yeah. 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 They've done a good job. And and DVC, I think we we probably should have somebody on sometime who understands this better than us and can really explain it. But from what I understand, you know, you have your home resort, but that doesn't mean you always have to stay there. So you can use your points and things to travel around to different resorts. So just because you your home resort is Old Key West, you you still have the opportunity to go to Grand Floridian or Wilderness Lodge or wherever. You um, summed so. it up perfectly. I was going to say my parents joined in 1994, so I can explain this. If you need to, uh, but you go. purchase points at a dollar amount um, and then you pay that off. So it's like a one time purchase, but there are annual dues which go towards the renovations and the upkeep of those individual villas. So our home resort is Old Key West. That was the only option in 1994. But my parents have certainly stayed at many of the different villas. Um, the thing that doesn't change is the point value has not gone up. So you can always stay for like a week with the amount of points that you bought, if that's how many you purchase, it just might depend on the time of year that you can go. Hmm. 
have you have you stayed at a lot of different properties? I'm assuming then with your. I park? have, yeah. Um, I got to tour Riviera uh, for their open house, and I would really like to stay there because it was so pretty. Mm. Um, but I really like the Beach Club Villas and the Boardwalk Villas over by Epcot and Studios, just for the transportation ease between the two parks and the best pools on property. Oh yeah, oh yeah, two good draws there, yeah. But you know what? There are villas out in California at the Grand Californian Hotel. And if you have a theme park view, you might be overlooking letter W, which stands for World of Color. Mm. The groundbreaking nighttime show opened in June of 2010 at DCA. And there have been seasonal iterations since uh, Winter Dreams premiered in 2013. And my understanding is that was updated kind of to a newer wintertime version called Seasons of Light in 2016, when uh, World of Color Celebrate did just that in honor of Disneyland's 60th in 2015, and new this year was the Villainous Edition as part of Oogie Boogie Bash. So I like that, you know, the ease of this technology allows them to easily make updates to the show, so it feels fresh, even just within the 10 years. Mm -hmm. I do remember when this show debuted, because... I mean, fans lost their mind just because it was it was a nighttime spectacular, unlike anything we'd really seen at the parks. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, two thumbs down to World of Color celebrate, but overall, really? <laughs> overall, I like the uh, the the concept of this type of show. Derek hated this thing, man. He celebrate was the first one I saw in person, so I was like, I didn't have anything else to to go on. But you're not a Neil Patrick Harris fan, I take it. I mean, I can give or take. He was just in a lot, and I just hated the song that was part of it. I don't know. It just wasn't my favorite. This is literally me. That was so great. And Derek was like, eh. (laughs) It's just, I I just think it's too long. Like, just World of Color and, well, now I'm just poop, now you're just making me poo-poo on it. Um, I, (laughs) like, I think it's such a great concept, and the water fountains are so pretty, and the way they light up the whole pier, it's just so picturesque. I just think it's sort of a one-note concept for to last 25 minutes. It's just a lot of the same thing. Um, Celebrate a world filled with magic. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good impersonation there. Thank All right. You. Well, it could be. I'm going to try uh, one of Courtney's famous uh, segues here. It could be that in the future, since it is so easy to change and add more characters, maybe one day we'll get some characters from our letter X, which stands for X-Men and other Fox acquisitions. So maybe World of Color 2020 will feature Homer Simpson. Who knows? Oh, Lord. <laughs> Can't Who imagine. knows? Uh, but this was a big decade in the sense that there were talks for years. It was in the news constantly. Is Disney going to purchase Fox? Yes, they are. Oh, no way. It's not going to happen. Yes, it is. It's happening. Disney purchased Fox. Uh, X-Men is now part of it. There are a lot of rumors. Uh, Kevin Feige has... Is that how you say his name? That sounded weird when it so. came out of my mouth. But I think it's Kevin Feige. Uh, has talked about how he's very excited to start adding some of those other characters to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, The Simpsons is now on Disney+, Plus, as are many other Fox properties, like Home Alone. And this is, I I think, is it was huge for this decade because it happened, but I think maybe when we look back at the 2020s, it will be... Uh, It will define that decade more because we'll really start to see what this means for the future of Disney and Fox. 
but definitely a big moment from the last couple of years. I 100% agree. I don't think we've even reached anywhere close to the pinnacle of what this acquisition is going to mean for the future of the company. Well, you seem even in this, you know, we've talked about Marvel and Star Wars and both of you have said how you really tie that to Disney now. It'll be curious to see what we tie to Disney in the future. Oh my goodness. Kids of the next generation are going to say, I love that Disney movie Home Alone. Still going to fight that Anastasia is not a Disney princess. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, speaking of fighting for Anastasia, you now have a platform to do that because letter Y (laughs) is... uh, stands for yours truly and of course we're talking about us the mad chatters and book of the mouse club and many other disney podcasts many 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 other disney podcasts uh you know the old joke what do you call a group of crows a murder what do you call a group of lions a pride what do you call a group of white guys a podcast and um the 2010s have opened up this opportunity for us. I mean, we started in 2014. Yeah. And Book of the Mouse Club started in... 2018. So coming up on a little over a year now. But yeah, Yeah. I would say it's definitely been an expanded platform. Certain shows like Lumangelo and stuff, you know, they predate this decade in 2007. But I'd agree, like, they just continue to pop up and gain prevalence. For sure, yeah. I mean, and and it's so easy. I mean, even when we started, gosh, almost six years ago now, five, six years ago, um, you know, it wasn't hard to do. Uh, It just kind of takes a little bit of effort and trying to find your identity. And I think, you know, there's podcasts that definitely come and gone and uh, some lasted longer than others. Uh, But yeah, you know, now we get to connect with Disney fans and you don't have to necessarily get your news from official sources anymore. You can kind of... Uh, hear directly from fan sites and also hear their opinions and help formulate your opinions. So, Yeah, and like we talked about with the blogs, there are certainly lots of generic news-oriented podcasts, but there are lots of very specific ones like Courtney's. I think that's such a great, unique route to take with Disney books and, you know, Disney food and ones that are specifically devoted to Epcot or Disney Springs. It's just, you can find anything out there. Well, if there's one thing podcasts are known for, especially this one, I think it's throwing a little shade. Oh, and wow. that okay. brings us <laughs> to our final letter, which is zero. For the number of new Disney parks that have opened in the U.S. for the first time since the 1960s. Um, I'm going to toss it over to Derek since this was your idea here, if you want to do the honors. <laughs> I'm sorry, did you have a better idea for the letter C? I didn't, but I came up with cues that were interact. <laughs> you came up with a lot of good ones. Um, for I do want to say that this is not throwing shade. I just think it's notable that it is the first time since the 60s when we didn't get a new U.S. park. But I, th- I just think it's more indicative of what Disney has decided to focus on moving forward. And I think that's their current parks. We saw so many huge changes and complete reimaginings of the parks that they do have. Like, this was the decade Hollywood Studios got rid of the Sorcerer's Hat. You know, Mm. this was the decade we lost things like Ellen's Energy Adventure and Great Movie Ride. And, you know, hopefully I think in the future we'll agree that these were all really good changes because they are finding their identities now. 
um, kind of like what Jeremy said earlier about the teenage years. The parks are, you know, discovering who they are. Like, this is such a crucial time for all of our current parks to discover who they are and who they want to be moving forward. So, no, we did not get a new U.S. park for the first time since the 60s. Um, but in a way, we kind of did. You know, yeah. we got, I mean, this, oh, no, wait. MGM became Hollywood in the 2000s, so never mind. Yeah. No, but it feels like a new part. Absolutely. I think it was a time of transition there in the middle of this decade. But now as it closes out and Rise of the Resistance is open, we, we really have more of a complete picture of what that park has shaped up to become. It's the old philosophical conundrum about um, if you have a ship in a, in a museum and you break in every night and you replace one board of that ship with a new board. At what point does that ship no longer that ship? Mm -hmm. You know, you replace things from from the park, uh, you know, opening day MGM. I mean, what really is still around from then? Not much. Indiana Jones stunts spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, is MG I don't even know if that's opening day. Is Hollywood Studios still MGM? I mean, nah, probably not. You know, it's funny, Indiana Jones was not opening day. And as we were walking through the park, Carter, my nephew, said, is Star Tours the oldest attraction here? And there was kind of silence. And then the three of us adults who were with him were like, I, I think it is. I think it's the oldest attraction here. Yeah. Yeah. And goes up against Rise of the Resistance from the same franchise, which is the newest attraction there. Still Just bookend. It. Just a bookend, exactly. Um, let's not also forget that this was the decade that I mean, you look at, I saw Magic Kingdom from the 90s. It's featured in one of those Imagineering story episodes I was watching on Disney+. Plus, and I forget how much the hub has changed mm. just this decade alone. Like, it looks like a totally different park with way more trees in those videos. It was crazy. It was a little, like, it was a sort of a shocking moment. Yeah. yeah the past few episodes of the Imagineering story have really focused on DCA's transformation as well. Just yeah. like what that park started out as and what it is now very very different yes our friend jeff DePauli has talked about those years when it was just a construction wall like just for a few years it just looked like one giant construction wall so and that's what epcot's going to be for the next few years i have a feeling yeah and let's also for not forget that this was the decade when we stopped wearing plaid shorts and cargo shorts as well <laughs> yes some of us <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's sort of a good segue. You know, what does the future hold? Epcot certainly um, is going through a lot of changes. And I think Disney will also just focus on the other parks for a while now. I, I don't think there's any talk of a fifth gate opening soon. And at Disneyland, there's probably not talk of a third gate opening soon. And, you know, that's okay. As long as the parks that we love get the ten atten attention they deserve, then we're all going to be happy guests. So... That does it for us in the 2010s. So it's been a wonderful decade. We look forward to many more years with you. Well, many more episodes. I, I don't want to put the word years on it just in case. <laughs> um, but it's been a fun decade for me. I hope it has for you all as well. Um, Courtney, thanks as always for joining us. Do you want to remind our listeners where they can find your wonderful podcast? 
Absolutely. So anywhere you find this podcast, you can likely find Book of the Mouse Club. We're also online at Book of the Mouse on Twitter and Instagram. We did just have our last episode of the decade. That was an interview with author Jeff Bayham about his Haunted Mansion book, the unauthorized story behind that attraction. But we're looking forward to 2020. So stay tuned for what books are on our reading list. I think it'll all depend on what Santa brings me this year uh, for what I'm going to read next year. Um, If you want to keep up with me individually, though, I am on Twitter at Courtney underscore Guth or on Instagram at Great Guthsby. Definitely a great follow. I was going to tell you to also plug your personal, so I'm glad you did. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, you can always find us online as well at madchatters.net. I don't know why I plugged our website. That was so random. Don't go to our website. We ain't updated Talk it about a throwback. <laughs> it's really lame. Go to our Instagram or Twitter pages at Mad Shatters, or um, you can find our Facebook page online, or you can send those emails to comments at madchatters.net. Thanks for a wonderful decade. We'll see you in 2020, I guess. Take a little time to find the magic in every day. That's what we're going to do. We're going to do some Disney Christmas songs mashup. Yes. (laughs) All right, I'll start. (laughs) Sometimes Derek looks at me and I'm just like, I think I did something wrong.